Today on Ravings from the Lucid Fringe, an omnibus edition, a Capetonian in Central Europe journeys through the Slovene lands. Above Bard Eisenkappel, ramblings from the Corinthian slopes. This is not the Austria I had been expecting. Two years of seeing and hearing about gun-toting officers demanding vaccine passports while Austrians blundered on with their lives blinds you to the possible warmth of reality. I indulged my father in this trip to the south of the country, though it was kind of itching to move even further south, across the border. As such, in this land where our collective amnesia over human atrocity is writ large in a collective stereotype, I was pushed once more into questioning my assumptions about people. Too long taking in anything online does that, of course, more so than more considered and direct forms of knowledge gathering. It pushes us towards squeezed stereotypes of who we might meet. The gentle irony of the reality. One warm provincial type urging us to visit the museum he curated at the top of a tower in Klagenfurt. We never made it, but all three of us felt the authenticity as he prepared to hike with his wife, a Sunday Corinthian stroll in the woods. Corinthia. Perhaps a better name for the landscape than the national title, because at least it breaks free of all the later layers of labels and tries to evoke a distant past, a greater rootedness. Really, this is a world of Märchen. The fairy tale Ur forest, perhaps. Witches and wolves and elves around the corners. We gorge on wild strawberries and think of gingerbread houses. I always pictured it as long lost, except for a small patch around the black forest, itself damaged by the acid rain I wore t-shirts to rage against as a teenager. In fact, it extends, far and wide, giving way to meadows of unfamiliar flowers, at least for this boy only used to Feinbos crowds on the Cape Mountains. And I recall Peter Vollebens' The Hidden Life of Trees, telling the story of these grand European beings and their conversations, understanding each other far better than we hear the Österreich dialects of German or Slovene. Down in the Cape, the most prominent conifers are plantations of pine, growing out of place and climate, leaving strangely empty undergrowth that doesn't quite know how to cope with these European intruders. In Corinthia, the forests have roots, and the yellow thistle things and creamy foxgloves and lush mosses and scurrying sounds and orange butterflies resting now and then like cats highlight that these firs and larches aren't interlopers, 
Somewhere there might be bears hiding, and elsewhere fairy folk. And wolves have made such a comeback across the continent that French farmers are agitating for greater livestock loss compensation. It doesn't take much to get French farmers agitating, perhaps, but they're usually grounded, and in this case it's a genuine concern. Rewilding at all costs part of a rushed top-down state environmentalism that could be done much better with more patience, trust in local knowledge and genuine negotiations. European leadership hasn't been much good at that in the last few hundred years, if not before, and have spread their impatience to the rest of the world, of course, which already had plenty of bad examples of our own. Here, streams trickle, even with summer spiralling forward. Compared to the gentle rivers I'm used to, round here rivers are done in big brush strokes. The forests are soft, well-watered affairs. And up in the distant Alps to the south, there's still plenty of snow in late June. What are they, we wonder? Eventually we'll make it to the far side of the Kamnik Savinia Alps in Slovenia. For now, they're a curiosity, looming up far too close to be the more famous Julian Alps. Neither range are really to be our conquests on this trip, which is aimed at gentler slopes. I have nothing against reaching the occasional summit, but peak-bagging has a touch of the comically tone-deaf Victorian gentleman to it as an activity, along with the hurried itineraries of my youth. The mountains are mostly not their summits, after all. Like the butterflies, bees are active in the meadows and the undergrowth. Fat, delightfully noisy and content. A challenge to all those honey-bee apocalypse petitions I've signed, though it just makes me realise again that experience is partial. We've lost genuinely disturbing numbers of insects in recent decades, bees included. The windshield splatter count in our hire car is not high, as a reminder. It won't start at the end of our walk, and the German-only manual gives us no clues. Eventually my brother gets enough reception to track down a vital titbit on a chat forum, and we discover that clutch and brake at once unlock the ignition. Tech. Data. 4G in the air that might be knocking out the insects. And, of course, whatever governments and the companies who pay them might say, we simply don't know enough about what all these frequencies are doing. And we're off home for the night. Another day another shrine. These Catholic lands are full of them. Mary, Jesus and the saints look down beneficently upon the traveller, so much like Durga or Kali in rural India. There are empty huts on stilts, reached up ladders, which we innocently ascribe to bird hides. In fact, they're the haunt of those other fairy tale figures, the hunters. A feast for the pot, aided by lead shot, perhaps. And here, in the only Austrian valley with Slovenian speakers, there's also a statue shrine to the partisans, fighting vigorously against the Nazi occupation and suffering for it. It is apparently only a few years since the first Austrian politician publicly acknowledged their bravery. We arrive just after a commemoration day for those massacred back then on the edge of the woods. In winter, the narrow tracks of these valleys in the heart of Europe must become remote, 
may be lonely and sometimes frightening. Of course, part of me has always longed for that remoteness from the metropolis. The people of the hills worldwide, historians and common sense tells us, are less inclined to obey orders from the city-based empire. At times, the all-too-human wolves around here were tracking down gorillas who knew the land, knew its plant abundance and its secret glades. When I was tiny, I thought conifer woods in Switzerland were the hundred-acre wood in Winnie the Pooh. They had a mystical quality I could touch. One hundred was such a big number that it felt like infinity, like trees that stretched back to the heaven I'd so recently arrived from. Electric cattle fences were strangely part of that memory, and lifting a gate, its plastic handle safe to touch at the end of a long and potentially prickly wire, brings back these sensations. The cows themselves are a satisfied creamy colour, seen above and below the zigzagging paths. Memory is stirred by the senses. Mere brain memory often feels thin in comparison. So do these sensations help bring me back to something primal in my own story? But then there are dog roses flowering too, which I only met in South African gardens. My knowledge of plants such as it is is grown in the Copsa countryside. These long midsummer days, experienced by me for the first time in 24 years, a passage of two Kumba Mela cycles, are a juicy part of this world. I like the long evenings. I like, too, describing our Cape winters to the locals and feeling the specialness of being from the underpopulated south of the globe. Longo Mai is the name of the farm where we stay. The name, confusingly, turns out to come from neither Slovene nor German, but from Provençal dialect, a Languedoc blessing for long life. It's an eco-farm connected to many others, some in southern France, some as far away as Ukraine and Nicaragua. Doing its own bit for decades now, to connect with the land and help a community to grow doing so. Such eco-communitarian vibes always interest me, but I also always look out for how the arts are honoured, since for me any community needs art to breathe. There are intriguing theatre productions down in the valley, born out of the community here in part, it seems, and the history book on the shelf shows music and spectacle as part of the group's journey. My interest is duly piqued, though this is a fleeting visit. We do work out that the gruff local who puffs his cigarettes early outside is not our host, but a longer-term visitor, a generous geologist identifying the rocks of the slopes and the soil types that emerge on top. A symbiotic dance of the pedosphere. Plants and rocks and sunlight and rains and seed-transporting animals weaving together an ancient story. Our cottage lies at the top of a steep path, where a dreamy swing flies out from the birches it's tied to. For the first time in a very long time, I'm breathing out. And in that space, there's room for conversations to bubble up between the silences. And although my father, my brother and I have met from three continents, with very different experiences and probably fractured opinions over the past years, 
we connect in the open-minded sweetness of the forest evening over a glass of local red and good food prepared unfussily and with gratitude for such places and times. Crumbling borders. More tales from a Central European trip. The hiking map we used in the Austrian woods also shows the route to the border, complete with the tight bends on a yellow road up to the border post, looking like the snaking fish river through the Namibian canyon I visited long ago in the first weeks of this dysfunctional millennium. It's my first big drive on the right-hand side of the road. Of course, most of the world drives like this, but I've been cushioned, driving only in southern Africa and, long ago, in a different hire car, on the bloody-minded island of my birth. Changing gears with my right hand still feels wrong, and what a day to really get moving. A few kilometres into Slovenia and the rain begins to pour. Surely there are shortcuts? We never find one, and read later that the only tunnel through the mountains would have required us to drive onto a train, which is why the Google God showed it as a possible straight line. The trees seem tighter together here. In fact, everything is tighter together. A country I like the idea of because it seems almost human in size. I'm generally despairing of modern states, which are much too big for their jackboots. Here... We drive, by mistake, right through one of the largest cities, Kranje, population under 40,000, and are out the other side before we've realised. A few Tito-era high-rises and a movie poster for the latest instalment of Indiana Jones. At first, I think, maybe Harrison Ford has only just reached Slovenia. The accidental detour doesn't make us late for lunch in Skofia Loka, and having nearly turned onto the left side of the road by mistake we park. First impressions stick. Ours is of a nation of matter-of-fact friendliness. A couple leaving the municipal car park, watching us struggle to interpret the Slavic words on the machine, give us their ticket for free. I wonder idly about living and working here. Yet even if almost everybody speaks English passably, everything is in Slovenian, and of course no would-be immigrant speaks it. A bookshop in the medieval core is filled with books in a language only this country knows. The bibliophile in me is delighted. Imagine if the Welsh all spoke only Welsh on a daily basis. That would keep the Sassanax out. I don't even know what the Welsh would call English speakers, actually. Sassanax is a Gaelic word. I'm intrigued. What caused this linguistic pride to hold so firm, surrounded by Germans one side, Italians another, and even Serbo-Croat punched with a lot more weight here till recently? Slovene is the last Slavic language to retain dual forms, not just singulars and plurals, as if we said one moon, two munos, many moons. Sanskrit has the same archaic system, but Sanskrit is allowed to, being sacred and mystically ancient. Slovenes are romantic, apparently, loving to notice pairs when they speak. Later on our trip, in the pretty sleepy town of Kamnik, we stumble across part of the answer in a curious local museum. A general, who was also a poet, 
Rudolf Meister wrote nationalistic clichés worthy of Rupert Brooke when he wasn't joining in the machismo wars of his day. But in holding poetry evenings at his home, he showed that being a Slovenian meant honouring writers and using the language. Perhaps only a macho soldier could have managed to instill such values in such an era. When he took land from the crumbling empire after the Great War, it was with this worthy sentiment, and so we get this tiny nation with such a quiet pride in itself. And we are reminded that the Habsburg Empire was an impossibility, a multi-ethnic world, a flawed European Union prototype. And I, who come from a multi-ethnic, flawed African state, full of small, demonstrative, largely oral languages, who have long since ceded too much ground to written European ones, reflect again on this dance of language and power. Slovene isn't going away any time soon, and that feels like a good, juicy thing. I pretty soon get that Havala means thanks. Gratitude goes a long way in making connections. Such thoughts are balanced by the bends in the roads. Perhaps nobody much bothered to take Slovenia over because it was too much trouble. Our hire car sputters up the hills and my father talks of his first trip into 60s Yugoslavia, a three-gear vehicle towed over the mountains by an enterprising local tractor driver. It's not my first visit either. Lake Bled appears turquoise, its chapel rising from the island like a perfect fantasy novel image. The car park would cost us 20 euros, so we don't stick around. Bled, these days, is clearly the nation's sacrifice to mass tourism. Back in the 1980s, we rode on the placid lake in the sunshine and ate veal at a restaurant, paid in Yugoslav dinars. I remember wondering at the curious cutlet in those pre-vegetarian but still largely herbivore days of my childhood. No photos, just a strong memory muscle being exercised again. In these Instagram days, it's great to have to delve into those barely remembered moments. Lake Bohinge is another story, hiding at the east of Julian's Alps. They sound very Roman, but turn out to be named after a peak-bagging Victorian. This is not a great place for fascist myths to take hold. Anyone who thinks Leibach are fascists doesn't get the irony, so might just be a fascist themselves. I later play my dad old videos of their covers of Live is Life and Across the Universe, and we chuckle merrily. Mussolini would have been even more obviously incompetent if he'd been great leader of little old Slovenia, where there aren't many Slovenes to go around, and somebody who knows your maiden aunt is probably about to ambush you. I finally realised that Melania Trump couldn't be straightforwardly interested in power. She was just a working-class Slovenian girl making it biggish, or something like that. Then again, Stalin was Georgian, and Napoleon Corsican, so maybe leaving the small pond for the Big Apple is exactly what a self-respecting would-be dictator might do. There are beech trees round the lake. There's even a national park sign up acknowledging them. At first I think it's bizarre honouring such an everyday tree. I grew up with a beech tree in the garden, built a haphazard treehouse in it and climbed it so much it must have hurt. Knew its boughs and twigs like an extension of my body. But here... The lush beach is everywhere, magnificent. 
I wrote a story in high school set in Retreville, where the beaches had some unspecified sinister intent, and my English teacher applauded me for subconsciously picking up on a French folk belief about these determined arbours. Here by the lake we breathed them in. The atmosphere only given a hard edge by a car in the caravan park blasting out techno in the summer rain. Rivers and bridges. We pass some in iron, where the metal has been extracted since the misty past. An industrial history that seems to say this artisanal truth could have been the way if those northern English capitalists hadn't been so greedy. And we drive on, towards our destination, on a high plateau amidst the sheep. Dreznice is a village in the mountains, with a church that commands respect. Extraordinarily beautiful, but extraordinarily recent. The Catholic cult here is full of creative warmth, the frescoes as creamy as the flocks. Just like the peoples over the northern border, there was suffering here in my grandfather's time. A totem pole remembers the partisans, and other sculptures on our walk, the next day when the sun returns, speak of wooden pagan giantesses mixed up with scrap metal crucifixions. Catholicism's success was not born from the binary arrogance of the Roman bishops, but from piecemeal negotiation in local communities, absorbing much from what came before. One path goes between dry stone walls where the sheep shelter over ruins returning to the woody hillside. Another is full of black, electric blue butterflies, friendlier than ever. A bird of prey starts as we go past, its repose normally guaranteed here in the hill people's place. Our host welcomed us after the rain with a shot of something herbal, medicinal and charmingly alcoholic. She's even made us a local version of a minestrone soup and gives us a bottle of white fermented with a grape we've never heard of. My father has mislaid his hiking stick again, still subconsciously denying the need for it, perhaps. An email to a local sports shop tells us instantly where we can get another. None of this seems aimed specifically at making money out of tourists. I feel some nostalgia growing for the Yugo culture that encouraged mutual support somehow. I don't yet have a handle on it, but I like it here. We walk through what should be a tourist trap, besides the exquisite Socha River, near falls that burst through the limestone cast cliffs, or I plunge into the waters in my underwear, next to river rafters, and briefly remember the different freedoms and frankness of my Cape community. But it's nothing like bled. The locals point us to eggs, which have the same name as in Russian, and is spoken in a disconcerting KGB accent, here in the aisles of Euro prices and Italian and German products. And tangy sheep cheese, and buckwheat, the local staple, delicious and malty. There are tasteful cafes, and there are gentle slopes and lazy campsites, and a big open meadow for lovers and cyclists that takes me back to student days. Another sunny day awaits. There are cyclists everywhere, actually, hardy types given the gradients. We drive up to a mountain overlooking Italy, which has insanity on its crest. Concrete remnants of World War I trenches, now overgrown with the flowers that have reclaimed this, since Rommel's breakthrough a century ago mowed down the Italian positions. The woody Italian hillsides are visible, dotted with tiled chapels, and another kind of history. 
we hear enthusiastic Italian voices, bikers discussing routes and vehicles. Up here in the borderlands, the borders have never made the kind of sense they made in Rome or Vienna, and the wild strawberries still grow for whichever tribe finds them. In the heat of the afternoon, we march up to the Italian mausoleum, starkly remembering all the men that died. To get there, one must pass grey sculptures of the Stations of the Cross, telling us of life's hardships, and of the Lord experiencing them too, as well as the odd helping hand. But a lizard suns herself on Jesus's knee, and next to the mausoleum, the beaches tell another story, lead us to cooler, forgiving paths. On the descent, we learn that here, of all places, a crazy crusade was once launched, filling in a sacred well and cutting down a sacred tree, a futile medieval metropolitan quest flowing out of the land of Latin lore to dam up such pagan reverence for Mother Nature. It is open again now, a sign proclaiming the water's health benefits, and in the woods I can feel Pachamama is so clearly always forgiving us, even with our centuries of foolishness. Yugoslavia and other myths, further tastes of Slovenia. The streets of suburban Ljubljana have a texture I remember. Back in 1991, in a small window between the collapse of communism and the outbreak of civil war, I travelled on an exotic tour to Novi Sad in northern Serbia. We were playing in a youth jazz orchestra, and the locals lapped up our mainstream western vibes in a way that made our teenage egos proud. I recall the Mediterranean heat, alongside the matter-of-fact high-rise blocks and the ubiquitous eastern block cigarettes, evenings in concrete bars, or in the extraordinary nightclub in the fortress, which is home these days to Exit, a leading European-wide party festival. And yet, art galleries and sculptures, and a general sense of something more seeped through the cracks in the pavement slabs. These suburban bits of this small capital have much of the same feeling, even down to the random graffiti recognising a major western pop icon that nobody would bother to scrawl on walls in the west. I am back in the Balkan lands, in the cities that have something of Greece something of Italy and something of Russia in a marvellous paradox. The last time I left, Yugoslav Airlines were going on strike, because they could, and we had to get out on any flight with space, meaning my beloved trombone went in a different direction to me for a while. I'd spent the weeks enjoying Serbian National Coffee, suspiciously Turkish style, or Serbian National Cheese, suspiciously like Greek feta. The wildly optimistic young man who was my pen-pal and host for the visit was full of the kind of sentiment that saw many of his generation die soon after. There's a bit of yearning these days for Yugoslavia across the republics. Perhaps not so much in Slovenia, which escaped almost scot-free. The way our friend describes the pock-marked souls of Croatians, I recognise the shared trauma of South Africa, People always a little on edge, whether for present-day landmines or bullet holes from the past, 
but gritty, survivors with a low, rasping accent and a permanent middle finger for authority, even as we do what we can to get along. Or perhaps I'm imagining that, since we're actually next door, where the Yugoslav army turned back after a week and the EU welcomed them in with open arms. An extraordinary bit of good luck. It's impossible to really get the hang of a place in such a fleeting trip, though I'm doing my damnedest. Building styles have to stand in for longer conversations. And closer to the centre, I notice a theme I'll pick up in Vienna too, on a grander scale. There are an excess of fin de siècle buildings, three or four storeys high. Grandiose statements of the rapidly growing imperial cities of the time, but leaving little room for artistic breath. Ljubljana has plenty of other buildings too, and a medieval district that's another thing I'm getting re-familiarised with on this European trip. Medieval peoples were undoubtedly similar to us in many ways and utterly alien in others. In Putui, we witness a hilariously camp statue of St George tentatively tickling a dragon, an account of Selye with a sub-disco backing singer hairdo. There and elsewhere we come across many pedestrianised squares, hear many Catholic bells ringing out beautifully, and are reminded of the heartwood of European towns, the medieval cause from a distant age, comparatively empty then of humans but still with such an impact. The layers of history always hit me in Europe. I sometimes long for Africa where there are instead layers of geology, of botany, and sometimes of crackling magic floating free. These flagstones here have been trod by too many scholars. We're part of their number, of course. We eat out fabulous carb-heavy Slovenian peasant food, but a vegan version suitable for today's metro tourists. We cycle everywhere. One thing I really miss, my usual excuse being that I live in a coastal city with hills everywhere and winds that can throw you into the curb at a moment's notice. The grit gets grittier in Maribor, out to the east, the bit of the country that suffered more from the industrial collapse of the war next door in the 90s. We're too late for the annual festival, but still in time for some gypsy jazz in the streets and a burek in the rain. A kind of big fried puff pastry thing. It tastes great and can't possibly be good for me. The Balkans in a bite. A couple of years ago at the Waldorf school I work at, we put on a version of Twelfth Night that really was set in Illyria, the Roman name for Yugoslavia, and to Shakespeare little more than myth. I had, as ever, great fun sourcing the music, and in this case I was delighted to discover the brassy depth of Balkan style, at least as hip, actually, as the mainstream American sounds I'd imported on that 90s trip. It isn't only cities that preserve a medieval landscape, however. Smartno is a hilltop hamlet in the western winelands, with narrow alleys, Slovenian waiters serving Italian-style coffee, small boys kicking footballs outside the church, and mammoth fortress walls. This was once the border between the Republic of Venice and the Habsburg territories, and it's odd to think of these peaceful slopes as once the rough edge of disputed lands. Disputed not for any ethnic or religious reasons, but for pure mercantile advantage. The Venetians had, for centuries, no reason to believe in or be part of any Italian national enterprise, and they often strike me as peculiarly, disturbingly modern. They dealt with anyone and anywhere that would grant them favours, 
they would have scored pretty highly on the diversity, equity and inclusion scores of the 13th to 16th centuries, even as they went round creating colonies for commerce. And they had a kind of sham democracy, actually an oligarchy run by business. As for their religious tolerance, well, they dealt regularly with Muslims, Battle of Lepanto aside, though Orthodox Christians had plenty of complaints. Those four bronze horses at St. Mark's are not on their way to the Apocalypse, but rather once adorned the Hippodrome in Constantinople that the Venetians cynically sacked. Staniel is another pretty hamlet closed off from the lands below it. These days offering great Italian-style coffee, a theme, it seems, with views overlooking the Po Valley, which looks very picturesque from here, no hint of the industrial pollution further west. It's a place to forget time, with streets too narrow to drive around, and crumbling stone walls where summer brambles reign triumphant. Hot, dry, dusty. Until now we'd seen a land of dramatic waterfalls and great rivers. For a brief few hours we're in another kind of world. This is of course part of this country's charm, variety. Nova Gorica threatened to provide a different kind of variety as we raced through it a new town to replace the one the Italian negotiators took away, apparently filled like many a border town with casinos. I'm not sure how Tito's socialism justified that, which in South Africa was more the remit of canny businessman Sol Kersner, seeing opportunities in the bonkers border policies of the apartheid state. But I guess gamblers bringing foreign currency has always looked like justification enough for a little hypocrisy. Anyway, like with most Slovenian places, we've passed through it via a few leafy avenues before we've had a moment to get upset. Water does return, of course, at the most magnificent medieval spot of all. Architecturally extraordinary, Prajama Castle is really worth the tourist trap fee. The only irritation is the story trying to shoehorn the local Aristo builder into a Robin Hood mould, which smacks of a simplistic, Americanized version of history. More interesting is how they worked so creatively with water, making grooves to capture it as it ran from inside the caves, or adding metal contraptions high in the back chambers to source it from stalactites. Here's a castle built of stone, with the trappings of medieval provincial life, but where you can sense how immediate still was the experience of water, of fire, of the earth around the inhabitants, and of the winds that whistled through the cracks. There are plenty other rivers to come. Firstly, in those Kamnik-Savinya Alps we saw from the north in Carinthia. Now we approach them from the south, a beautiful wooded walk towards a glacier-covered peak, its facets better than any crystal goblet. Yet next to the walk is a dry riverbed, seasonal only. I didn't think that happened much in Europe, though we see dry beds all over the place in Africa. Another lesson in geography. There is still a raging river further down in the gorge we drove along, and there's fresh water to drink along the way, bubbling up into taps next to animal troughs. These are working farmlands, and the houses for bees are the most striking thing to notice, more like multi-storey apartment blocks, multiple hives coexisting peacefully. And here we're back in the conifer worlds once more, on the lookout for black squirrels, listening to the birds, greeting fellow day-trippers, mostly Slovenian. It really is easy to find beauty here and breathe out. The river churning through the gorge gets through its exquisite childlike early phase. Look at how pretty I am! 
and cascades into the flatter east between more lovely wooded hills with no obvious names. It ends up hugging Selye. Another grand river carves its way through Maribor. Both are broader than almost anything I'm used to. Even the orange on its desert journey is nothing like so full. In Maribor there's a new pedestrian bridge next to the precinct they're trying to revamp, where Europe's oldest wine-producing vine is kept and the jazz flows. It's empty, and we're wondering if it's closed. I step onto it, and it's like we've broken an energetic barrier. Within moments, flocks of teenagers are crossing behind us. We pause to look at the handsome town, and to feel that curious, ungrounded feeling of hovering over a large water body. The teens press on regardless, heading to the latest hotspot with determination. Thirty years ago, that was me. Hopefully they are less naive than some of those Serbian kids back then. Hopefully they keep, too, a little of that youthful mountain water sparkle on their journeys to come. Ravings from the lucid fringe. Ravings from the lucid fringe. Musings from an unpasteurized life.